On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Andrew Balich about John Owen and the Holy Spirit. So we cover all sorts of topics like who is Owen, why is his work on the Holy Spirit potentially underappreciated, or is it overappreciated in some sense for Owen? Why does Owen devote so much time to the Holy Spirit? Do others do the same thing? Why is he developing his doctrine the way he does? How does that really develop? Is it undergirding other aspects of his doctrine? Or is it really related to a particular debate about soteriology? What does Owen mean by the Spirit being the efficient cause of biblical interpretation? And much more. As you can tell, there's an action-packed episode. You'll have to give the whole thing a listen. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast that is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And if you're new to listening to us, uh, I'll let you know that we care about serious thinking, which we have tried to, to take as things like valuing charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. If you're a regular listener, you know all about these things, but the, the basic idea behind them is that we want to think at the highest level and engage with the, the, the most sophisticated arguments, but we want to do so in a way that is Christian. Uh, we find texts like James 3 very instructive for the intellectual process, which we think includes things like um, the meekness from wisdom that's open to reason and gentle and peaceable. Uh, so that's sort of our posture uh, with this. That doesn't mean we can't be critical and uh, push back and engage, but it does mean that you should do it with a spirit of uh, just kindness and care for the other. Uh, knowing that they're another person that we should treat and respect. So with all that said, I'm thrilled to introduce you all to Dr. Andrew Balich, and we're going to be talking about Owen and some of his works. This is going to be a lot of fun. If if you're an Owen lover, which I think a good amount of our listeners are, you guys always will get a kick out of anything related to Owen. So this is just going to be a lot of fun. Uh, before we get started, Andrew, can you give me just like a quick overview of who you are and what was it that initially drew you to spending time thinking about John Owen? Yeah, well, I'm a pastor, a Christian Missionary Alliance pastor in Mansfield, Ohio, uh, actually at uh, Westwood Alliance Church that is the church that I grew up in. And so I spent uh, about 10 years in the Southern Baptist tribe uh, as I was ministering in, in churches in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, and studying at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, I did my, my doctoral work there under uh, Sean Wright, who is one of the general editors of this Owen Project. So that was part of my initial connection. And I have always loved the Puritans since I was in high school. And I, I actually picked up uh, the Banner of Truth, the uh, Puritan paperbacks, uh, abridged edition of John Owen's uh, the Death of Death and the Death of Christ, which is uh, when I was 16 years old, a junior in high school. And so I had an early introduction um, in the deep end with John Owen and have always had an interest in him, studied the Puritans uh, in my doctoral program. And so John Owen was uh, a natural fit to continue on that, that, that interest. And so I, I, what, the other thing I love about uh, the Puritans in general and John Owen specifically is I really do believe that uh, it dovetails nicely to study to study him and also 
uh, be in the trenches of pastoral ministry. Uh, there's a lot of overlap there that feeds my own soul uh, and equips me uh, to shepherd uh, the people that God has put in my care uh, more faithfully. Awesome. Uh, you mentioned that Death of Death uh, volume from Banner, and I think that was the first Puritan I really read, that Pur- Puritan work anyway was the death of death. It's, it's amazing how different works of the past can somehow make their way into contemporary, I don't know, milieu of some sort. So that was like the first book I read as a I newly fresh minted Calvinist when I'm like 19 or 20 years old, excited to get my hands on it. Yeah, I, I picked it up off of, I, I had just a kind of renew, renewed interest in theology and the Bible, kind of recommitment of my life to the Lord in high school. And my now father-in-law was an avid reader, avid reader of the Puritans, uh, was my pastor growing up as well. Uh, he just sent me up to his library and said, pick something. And I picked, uh, yeah, Owen. And he, he knew kind of with a smirk on his uh, face what I was getting into. But it, it was it was a blessing. It was a good thing. I see God's kind providence in it. That's awesome. So give me like the the super quick bio of Owen. I, I imagine a lot of our listeners know Owen, know his backstory. But we also have a lot of grandmas who listen to our podcast, too which we there are serious thinking is for everybody not just the 30 year old uh anxious dude so tell me who is owen real quickly and maybe your favorite story or or thing about owen so john owen was born in 1616 uh in oxfordshire england uh, he was born into a, a moderate puritan family so that was his up his upbringing puritans being those who uh, wanted to see the Reformation uh, be furthered in the Church of England. And they thought that uh, the, especially the worship forms uh, needed to conform to the theology that undergirded the, the Protestant Church there in England. And so Owen grew up that way and had those sympathies early on. He was educated at Queen's College in Oxford. Uh, he graduated uh, multiple times there with different degrees, but his uh, his MA, I believe, was in, in 1635, and it was just a couple of years that, as he was a, a teacher there uh, that he was driven from his position in 1637 because of some of the reforms, or uh, maybe reforms is the wrong word, but some of the changes that William Laud, the archbishop, was making and some of the things that he was forcing uh, were against those Puritan sympathies. So he was ousted from his position in 1637 when the Civil War broke out. He sided, uh, like most of the Puritans, with Parliament against the king. And uh, while he was not part of the Westminster Assembly officially, uh, he was extremely politically influential he was a preacher to Parliament. He was in London during those years of upheaval. He ended up being the chaplain, one of the chaplains to Oliver Cromwell, who was a Lord Protector during that uh, British Commonwealth period. He was uh, the architect uh, with uh, just a couple of others of the Savoy Declaration, which was the Congregationalist version or independent in Britain uh, version of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And he was extremely well published uh, both during those years of his uh, living in political favor and then in the, the decades that, that followed the, the restoration in the, in the 60s, 70s and early 80s. He ended up passing away in 1683. 
And so uh, his life spanned some of the most uh, exciting and eventful decades of, of English history there in, in the 17th century. And at the height, uh, Oliver Cromwell uh, appointed him vice chancellor of Oxford and dean of Christ Church and uh, had him serving on all kinds of other committees. And so he really was in the elite circles of society during those years, during the 1650s especially, uh, and that gave him the the cover, I guess, to avoid some of the more extreme persecution that others of his Puritan sympathies experienced in the, in the uh, 1660s and 70s. It allowed him to kind of live a quiet life, uh, devoting himself to pastoral ministry and, and to writing. As far as a favorite story, you know, I I don't know that this is a favorite story so much as just an observation about Owen. For all that he wrote, uh, he was an incredibly private individual. Uh, he very much, uh, it's extremely rare to find anything autobiographical in his writings. Extremely rare to see him talking from a personal experience or, or perspective. Uh, and what is fascinating to me about that is, is how incredibly difficult his personal life was, and yet he kept that so close uh, to the chest. And so uh, he lost his first wife uh, and actually uh, lost all 11 of his children, uh, 10 of the 11 in childhood, and uh, his daughter who grew to adulthood and was married and, and died shortly after, after her marriage. And so um, he's a real person, I guess, behind all of the theological tomes that we read and, and a credit uh, him with. Uh, he was a real person who suffered, who had a real relationship with Christ. And while that is not always at the forefront, uh, I think we just need to remind ourselves uh, that that was, was his reality and experience. Yeah. So before we dig into the particular volume that we're going to discuss on the Holy Spirit, the helper from Crossway, part of this huge series of Owen, I'd be curious about your evaluation of Owen. Are are there any seriously underappreciated aspects of Owen that we should spend more time emphasizing? And conversely, is there anything that's overappreciated about Owen? I mean, there's a ton of Puritans, a, a ton of English theologians over that period of time, and not all of them have been subject to such retrieval as Owen. And so is there anything about him that we're over-evaluating compared to his peers or others? Well, I, I was privileged to work on this, uh, actually two volumes of this complete works of John Owen republication that Crossway has done. Uh, volume seven and eight, and in volume seven, the Holy Spirit, uh, the the Helper, um, I think is, is actually the uh, second volume. So if if we think about the Banner of Truth volumes that are the kind of standard pure or, uh, standard Owen Fair uh, that's accessible right now, volume three was his discourse on the Holy Spirit. And then volume four was the one that I edited for Crossway and did in two different volumes. And those are kind of his ancillary treatises on the Holy Spirit. And so I was privileged to be able to work on Owen on the Holy Spirit and see these as some of the earliest volumes that came out in the Crossway series. Because I think 
Owen's work on the Holy Spirit uh, is perhaps one of those underappreciated areas. Uh, he's more known for his work on atonement, like we talked about at the beginning here, uh, mortification of sin, uh, his views on, on killing sin and temptation in the Christian life, or his uh, mammoth Hebrews commentary. But his, his work on the Spirit really is uh, exhaustive, and he wanted it to be exhaustive. There were uh, lots of Puritans that were writing on communion with God and talking about how we commune with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, his contemporary, uh, Thomas Goodwin, uh, was known for his Christology, and, and Owen really is even if he's not as keenly remembered for his pneumatology or his doctrine of the Holy Spirit, that really is where he is a pioneer. Not necessarily because he's doing something totally unique or reinventing the wheel in any way, but because he is trying to be exhaustive in his treatment. So I think Owen on the Holy Spirit is definitely uh, perhaps a uh, underappreciated um, element of, of Owen. When it comes to his perhaps outsized influence, you know, I, I think it is one of those, uh, simply those coincidences or, or God's providential hand in history that part of the reason why we all know the name John Owen and he's well loved and well read in circles these last few decades and in conservative, especially reformed uh, evangelical circles is largely because the retrieval of the Puritans in the 20th century that centered around Martin Lloyd-Jones and J.I. Packer and the Puritan conference that was over there in England uh, they, their foray or entryway was Owen. Owen was one that uh, Banner of Truth decided to reprint. And early on from the uh, edition, the Gould edition in the 1800s. And so I, I think that's part of why uh, there's so much focus on Owen because he was at the point of the spear of Puritan retrieval in some of the, the circles at least have been influential in my life. Uh, but I don't think that's necessarily entirely unfair. He, he really was a incredibly significant figure uh, in in the 17th century. Uh, he wasn't peerless, and we are are learning more about his peers. But uh, you got to start somewhere, and so I don't think that it was unfair uh, to to start with Owen. Yeah, that's good. So uh, we mentioned Goodwin being sort of more known for Christology, Owen for his doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Why is it that Owen felt the need to devote such time to it when his contemporaries are not spending as much time on the Spirit as he is? Well, part of it is Owen, I think, looking for uh, something that is a contribution that nobody else is making at the time. So I think that that is especially his uh, first volume uh, the volume three in the Banner of Truth edition, uh, his discourse on the Holy Spirit. Um, I think that's part of his, the impetus there. I, I do think, though, uh, he's centering on the Holy Spirit because he's a pastor and he sees the Holy Spirit's role of applying all of the benefits that Christ purchased for us uh, in his, um, really in his substitutionary life, death, and resurrection. 
Um, and so there's a, there's a piety aspect, a spirituality as, aspect to Owen's focus, but especially the ones that, um, the, the, the treatises that, that I worked on, the reason of faith causes ways and means of understanding the mind of God, his work on the Holy Spirit and prayer, and then his view of, uh, the Holy Spirit as comforter and um, in his role in, in gifting the church and the spiritual gifts. You know, he is uh, drawing from scripture, but he's also uh, in a, a unique place in history, uh, in English history. And so he's responding to people in his reason of faith. He's responding uh, largely to the deists and their view of uh, revelation in his causes, ways, and means of understanding the, the mind of God. Really, the reason of faith and causes, ways, and means are two sides of his doctrine of illumination. And he's trying to create space. He, he doesn't want to appeal to tradition like the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, he also doesn't want to appear to just rationality, which is where the Socinians are in his day and age. And then there's all these radical sects, most well-known, perhaps the Quakers, who are appealing to this extra special revelation, and he doesn't want to go there. And so he's he's trying to uh, talk about the Holy Spirit's role in biblical interpretation without falling into the pitfalls that he sees in, in his context. So that, that's kind of a complex, and I think there's a lot of things going on of why he emphasizes the Holy Spirit and writes so extensively on it. Um, and I think it's he wants to do something that's a contribution. He's responding to his current historical situation. Uh, and he wants to expound the Holy Spirit as a pastor because of the importance of the role of the Spirit in our, in our Christian life. So speaking of historical context, I am curious as we zoom out to our own context and thinking about how we read Owen. You mentioned sort of like the he wants to avoid the pitfall of Rome and their reliance on tradition, and then the pitfall of the Sassanians and their reliance on reason. Is there any sense in which contemporary readers like us who are now, like, if I look on sort of like the contemporary theological debates, there's lots of stuff about like, can we actually use things like natural theology to understand scripture? Can we, can we use tradition? How do we use it? I mean, over the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, a growing movement of wanting to do theological retrieval and to go back to these historical sources to help us to understand uh, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So it, so basically what I'm trying to get at is, is there a sense in which somebody might appeal to Owen as somebody and say, look, he doesn't use tradition in this way. He doesn't use reason in this way. Therefore, we shouldn't use it like that. But we're forgetting the historical context of how he's doing theology and so we're almost misunderstanding what he's actually doing. Well, I do think so. When I use the term tradition and, and the way what Owen is responding against when it comes to the Roman Catholic Church is not is not their appeal to historical sources and theologians that come before. I mean, John Owen is part of this post-Reformation reform scholasticism, this uh, period that uh, probably the most well-known scholar Richard Muller talks about reformed orthodoxy. He is self-consciously part of what we would call the great tradition, or uh, he's uh, all about Catholicity with a small a small c. He is um, he is 
consolidating the insights of the Protestant reformers of the first and second generation in conversation with the church fathers and the medievals and contemporaries. And it's very quick if you read Owen's uh, academic works that, that he is he is in dialogue with all those periods and uh, a really kind of staggering number of uh, sources from those periods. And so when he's responding against the appeal to tradition, it is tradition as somehow authoritative in our understanding of the Bible. He, he was going to want to submit uh, tradition to the authority of scripture rather than the interpretation of scripture to the authority of tradition. So he's responding against this kind of Roman curia, if you will, or um, this authoritative interpretation of scripture that hamstrings uh, the actual pursuit of, of what he would see as the truth uh, in scripture. So I don't think in any way we should look at his uh, hesitancy to appeal to tradition as authoritative as, uh, as a cue for us not to consider uh, our own history and historical sources through retrieval that, that might be available to us. Owen would, would be all about that, about that project. Cool. That's helpful. Uh, question back on his pneumatology. So, you know, you're talking about how he's developing it in that historical context, wanting to make a contribution. Does he use the doctrine of the Holy Spirit to undergird any of his other doctrines in significant measure? Or is this more of a standalone, let's just explore the role of the Holy Spirit, who he is, his person, his work? I think it undergirds a lot of what Owen is doing in his theological project because he sees um, there's as a classical theologian, Owen's going to believe in things like the inseparable operations of the father, son and spirit, right? The Trinitarian inseparable operation. So the father sends the son to accomplish redemption and the father and son send the spirit to apply the benefits of that redemption to God's people. And so the Holy Spirit's work undergirds a lot of Owen's theological uh, loci, if you will. Um, things like his hermeneutics. I mean, that's what this volume, The Holy Spirit, The Helper, is about. Those twin treatises on illumination, reason of faith and causes, ways and means of understanding the mind of God. It's the Holy Spirit that allows us to assent to the truth of Scripture as it uh, self-authenticates. Uh, it is the Holy Spirit that allows us to understand the mind of God as it is revealed in the Word of God that we have in Scripture through illumination. So hermeneutics is a big one that the Holy his pneumatology undergirds. Uh, sanctification and piety. I'm thinking about his treatise on prayer and the role of the Holy Spirit in uh, our communion with the triune God. Uh, think about his doctrine of assurance, which is tied closely with piety, the Holy Spirit as uh, the seal of our salvation, which is interesting. Uh, the whole Owen is in a minority when he is writing his um, Holy Spirit as comforter 
in which was published actually posthumously in 1693. Uh, he, he was in the minority. The Thomas Goodwin and the view of the sealing of the spirit as a second work of grace sometime subsequent to conversion had won the day. But Owen looks at Ephesians and says, no, the Holy Spirit is the seal of our salvation, the down payment of every believer. Uh, it's not something you wait for for later on in your life. And, and, and I'm, I'm convinced that he's right biblically uh, on, on that view, even if he was in the minority. So his pneumatology is undergirding his doctrine of assurance and even his ecclesiology. When he gets and talks about uh, the gifting of the Holy Spirit, uh, some people might read his his treatise on spiritual gifts and, and think that he's going to speak into uh, the right cessationist continuationist debates of our day he doesn't he he leaves a room and he is open to the holy spirit operating in miraculous ways presently in the church today he wants to tightly tie gifts truly defined as gifts uh, to offices in the church and so there is not miraculous gifts per se because those were uh came to an end with the uh, special New Testament offices like that of apostle, but he still is open to the Holy Spirit working miraculously in the world world today. And so he sees the Spirit's gifting as uh, undergirding the office of, of pastor, of, of shepherd in, in the local church. And so there's a lot uh, that, that the Holy Spirit undergirds, especially if you think about the Holy Spirit being the, the primary uh, one to apply um, all of the benefits that Christ has purchased for us in redemption. So here's a question. I feel like it was 10 years ago. I don't know. Maybe it's a little bit longer than that. Maybe it's been 15 years. Francis Chan wrote that book, like The Forgotten God on the Holy Spirit, essentially arguing that where is the Holy Spirit? No one, you know, we've all forgotten that he's also God and we, we focus on just Jesus and we focus on the Father to the exclusion of the Spirit. But Owen seems to not have that issue. He's devoting significant real estate to who the Holy Spirit is and, and his work. Do you think, I guess if you agree with Chan's suggestion, why is it that Reformed Christians have not developed such robust doctrines of the Holy Spirit like Owen? Or would you just say, well, you just haven't read well enough, uh, Francis, and we actually have cared about this? Well, I, it, that's a curious question to me because I think there, in my experience um, in the church, which is totally anecdotal, and I'm not saying is everybody else's experience, right? Let me qualify it with that. Uh, but the Holy Spirit is either everything or nothing, you know? And so there's... I think in reform circles, in a response to Pentecostalism and charismatic uh, tendencies, there's been a, a kind of recoiling or a pendulum swing too far in the wrong way, perhaps. Um, and somebody like Owen brings brings balance there. But even in Scripture, the, te the witness of Scripture, the, the Holy Spirit is sent not to draw attention to himself, but to glorify the Son. Right. And so I, I think there is a a lesson there that we are not to be 
while we rely on the spirit and we need to understand the spirit's work and we, we need to uh, think about uh, the ministry and um, actually uh, apply ourselves to dependence on the spirit in, in a way that we see in, in scripture, he's not to be the focus. The focus really is to be uh, Christ and, and what God has done for us in Christ. So I don't know if that exactly answers your question. I think there's a, I think there's a hesitancy because of some of the excesses in the last few generations uh, that I think is misguided. But at the same time, um, I don't know that just perfect balance is the answer either because uh, the Holy Spirit doesn't draw attention to himself, we see in the witness of Scripture, but, but points us to Christ. Yeah. So in his, the, well, let me ask a, a dumb question before I ask this one. In the volume, it has this like Latin or Greek title like pneumatikati or something like, it's like two words. Mm-hmm. Is that the original title or is the original title like the, the, the ways and causes and mind of God? There, it's both. So he okay. gave it a Greek, he gave it a Greek title that is transcribed and then he, and then he gives the why really did he long, give it a Greek title? What's the purpose of that? Numenologia. I mean, it's just it's just uh, the you know it would be just translated the study of the Holy Spirit. I, I don't know why he did it. I can't I can't tell you why he, he did so. That. What's the proper citation method then? Do you put in the Greek or do you put in the English? Uh, if you want to be uh, Chicago Manual of Style uh, <laughs> proper. Your first citation would be both the Greek and the uh, uh. and the English as the subtitle, and then you could do a short title after that, and probably choose whichever whichever you prefer. Yeah, learning all sorts of cool stuff. Okay, <laughs> that now that, that that burning question has been answered for me once and for all. Now, in that treatise. There, I think it's that one where he talks about the role of the Spirit as the efficient cause of biblical interpretation. What does that mean? How does that look in real life when I'm reading my Bible? What is the Spirit really doing there? Yeah, he is working out of a Aristotelian causality uh, framework. Okay, so there's these various levels or layers of causation. And what he wants to do what he's doing in the reason of faith, the first treatise, is he, he wants to argue that the Holy Spirit is not the ground of our faith. And when he says faith in this context, he's not talking about saving faith, faith that unites us to Christ. He's talking about belief that scripture is the word of God. That's what he means when he says reason of faith. It's the reason for our believing that scripture is really the word of God. And he wants to argue that it is self-authenticating. So the Holy Spirit is not the reason that we believe. The reason we believe is because the scripture is self-authenticating. And he's trying to distance himself from any hint of needing some kind of special revelation in order to view scripture as God's word. He, he wants that ground to be in and of itself objective uh, that scripture is self-authenticating. And so the, when he talks about the Holy Spirit being the efficient cause of uh, our biblical interpretation or understanding, one thing he's doing is he's allowing us to assent to or agree that that which is objectively true, which scripture is the word of God, that we actually acknowledge it as true. So us actually assenting to the fact that scripture is divine revelation, that the Holy Spirit is enabling us to do that. 
Uh, we would be uh, rejecting it if it weren't for the Holy Spirit's work. Second, though, when we're talking about the efficient cause, and he elaborates on this in the that uh, treatise, the subtitle, which is The Causes, Ways, and Means of Understanding the Mind of God. Um, the Holy Spirit is the efficient cause in that sense of uh, his illuminating work. So his work in the past, the reason of faith is the inspiration. Uh, the scripture is self-authenticating. It's objective truth. There's nothing needs to be added to make that true. Uh, but even though we need to be aided to assent that that is true. Uh, but secondly, his work of illumination is what he does in the life of the believer, not just assenting that the scriptures are true, but also enabling us to understand them through what he would separate as spiritual and disciplinary means. So the spiritual means are prayer, meditation, the application of scripture to our lives, uh, conforming our desires to that which we find uh, as God's desires, as he reveals himself in his word. And then the disciplinary means are things what we would think about traditionally in hermeneutics, things like uh, lexicons and original languages and uh, the witness of tradition and historical context and grammar and all of that. Um, that's the disciplinary means. And while that is accessible uh, to anyone, whether they're a, firm, a believer, a sincere believer or not, the Holy Spirit uses those disciplinary means to uh, and aids those things to, to bring us to true to true understanding. So given this role of the Spirit, how much can a non-Christian know about the truths of Scripture or God or the Incarnation? Can they have a notional knowledge of any sort about certain matters? Owen would say yes, and this is this is one of those things that it's a hard question that, that every every generation of us has to answer, right? I mean, what's the difference between me and Bart Ehrman, right? He he knows New Testament Greek way more than I ever will, and uh, but yet, what what advantage do I have because the Holy Spirit is residing in me over someone who is unregenerate, presumably him being unregenerate? So um, why? What what there, I think what you just said captures it nicely. There is a notional knowledge. There is a uh, head knowledge to use our uh, categories, a things that we can know. But the difference is are the things that we know notionally versus those things that we believe to be true and therefore uh, stake our lives on and actually put in into practice. It's that part. Uh, that the Holy Spirit enables us us to do. So I, I don't want to reduce it simply to a matter of the will for Owen and application merely, because I think he's saying more than that. But when he says more than that, you, you very quickly fall into the realm of mystery. Right? He, he, he doesn't want to limit it to that, but it's hard to provide content for exactly what the Holy Spirit is doing when we talk in that notional sphere. Yeah, no, that's helpful. So uh, another question I have relates to the role or lack thereof of things like infused virtue in biblical interpretation. Does that play a positive role in any sense? And if so, how might that compare to a more Roman Catholic sort of approach to thinking about Scripture? You know, I, I don't recall specifically uh, Owen using or at least developing 
in any significant way that category of infused virtue for biblical interpretation. It, it seems more his emphasis is the abiding presence of, of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit as seal, giving us assurance of our salvation, the Holy Spirit uh, uniting us to Christ, working to apply those benefits of Christ to us that Christ purchased for us, uh, which would include a renewed mind, which would include a quickened will, which would include a desire and taste and a longing for the things of God that otherwise would not be there. And so I think that's something a little bit different than infused virtue, but but I, that's where I see Owen uh, at least uh, em- giving a heavy emphasis. Yeah. Okay. That that's what I thought. I mean, there there seems to be a growing interest in those sort of categories and notions, and I, I just always wonder how do these map back on to particular reformers, whether they're using that language or not. I'm always curious if the ideas and concepts can be similar, but sometimes there's a reticence to using loaded language that could sort of like signal alarms of bringing all, bringing all this baggage along with it that you didn't want to bring, whereas maybe there's just a... The, the right, categories simple, of infusion, yeah. categories of habit, have yeah. categories of virtue that come out of uh, especially uh, Thomas Aquinas and others. It's not that they recoil against those, uh, the, the post-Reformation period, in, in my opinion, but I think that it's just even that, that category of infusion I, I don't. I don't think works well uh, in in the reformed system. Personally, uh, I'm sure people would disagree with me, but in in my mind, and this is a uh, a longer term book project that I'm just kind of have simmering in the background. But I think that the Roman Catholic sacramental system, uh, which is based on infusion, uh, really takes the place of the Holy Spirit's role. Mm. And so when you come to somebody like Owen and you come to somebody like Thomas Goodwin, you come to the mature Puritans of the late 17th century, second or middle half uh, of that, of that century, you really have an emphasis on the Holy Spirit accomplishing that, which in the Roman Catholic system, the sacramental system is, is doing. And you can see that kind of down the line in the various ministries of the Holy Spirit, um, that they want to emphasize as opposed to this in infusion language uh, of, of Rome. So th- that's something that's simmering in the background. It's not developed yet, but I, but related to related to your question. Well, I, I like the idea. So you'll have to develop it more and let us know what you think uh, once you do that. Now, is there anyone in your mind who is better at helping us to think about reading the Bible well, at least from this period than Owen? that we should be aware of? Or is Owen the person that we want to go to first? That's a great question. I don't know that I would go to Owen first um, from, uh, from this period because he is, he's, he's, he is responding to very situated historical circumstances in these dual treatises on illumination. And he doesn't give us a lot of how to. All right. So there's a lot of theory, very light on 
like a hermeneutics manual or something you'd want to start your uh, discipleship 101 class on, you know, how do you read the Bible and feed yourself and then feed others sort of thing. I, I wouldn't necessarily start with Owen, although I think he's incredibly valuable and worth the, the time and effort uh, as maybe a second or third uh, choice. But um, from this period and influential in in the in the day, really more of a practical guide uh, would be uh, a work. Uh, actually, did a lot of my doctoral work on William Perkins and his art of prophesying. Which don't be hung up by that title. Uh, it really is a manual for pastors, and a large portion of it is a how, how do you nuts and bolts. Uh, understand the Bible. And so if you just wanted something that was more accessible, more practical uh, as a foray into Puritan biblical interpretation, I, I would probably say start start there. Got it. I was just talking to Perkins with a friend yesterday. So I've got all the Puritan uh, stuff coming at me. Maybe I just need to read more Puritans. Tell me a little bit about the actual Crossway series that's being done on this. I, I'm interested to hear why you think this series in particular is valuable, especially say somebody has bought several of the Banner of Truth volumes, or maybe they have the whole set. What's valuable about this series in comparison to the Banner series? Well, it's aesthetically extremely well done. Crossway outdid themselves. They're beautiful volumes. Uh, the, the paper quality, the binding, uh, they really kind of spared no expense on that. Now, I, I don't know that that is enough impetus to go to buy the 40 volumes that Crossway is releasing, but, but I would say that definitely separates uh, w- what Crossway is doing from, from the Banner of Truth edition. The other thing I would say, though, more uh, essentially would be these really are what Crossway is doing are critical editions. And so they are not a, simply a reprint from the 1800s, uh, which the Banner of Truth uh, edition is. These are um, were transcribed from uh, first editions, first published editions, and then were kind of painstakingly compared line by line to make sure that what, what we have offered is uh, what Owen uh, saw through to publication, especially those those places, things that were published during during his lifetime. So there's a critical edition, and with that comes a critical apparatus. So there's a lot of helpful um, aspects of uh, tools that go along with the critical edition. Things like when Owen cites a source that none of us have ever heard about before. Uh, us as editors have done the, the work of giving you a, a, a couple of lines of who is this, why are they important, where can you find this work that Owen is citing both originally and then in a modern edition. And so it will be valuable in that way. We've done um, some of the archaic forms. Instead of updating language, we have defined terms. And so we've tried to make it user-friendly in that way. Uh, they all have very substantial introductions that set uh, Owen's treatises or works in each volume in their historical and, and cultural context. Uh, and the other thing that we've done that I think will aid the reader immensely is added in subheadings. And so uh, those 
critical scholars of Owen who are doing PhDs on Owen are probably cringing when I say that. But because uh, I, I do acknowledge that it does in, interpret things uh, inevitably when we add subheadings. But Owen will sometimes go pages and pages and pages without a paragraph break, you know. And so how do we make that accessible? Well, by by making a, those sections split up into bite-sized chunks. So we're trying to give something that can be used as a scholarly edition. Uh, it's a cr true critical edition while at the same time um, making it accessible for people who uh, maybe won't buy the whole set but want to know what Owen says on the Holy Spirit and so would buy volume six yeah. or seven or whatever it might be. So I think they're valuable. Uh, I think um, any I would I would highly recommend if you are uh, have not started your Owen library um, to to make the added uh, expenditure and get these new volumes. Uh, if you have the Banner of Truth edition, um, that's something that you'll have to decide whether it's whether it's worth it or not. So. Well, you could always donate your Banner of, Banner of Truth version to somebody else if you really felt the need to get the, the new one and bless them in that way. So There you go. This is It's a double blessing. You get new Owen volumes, and you get to give somebody else Owen volumes. There you this go. This is a great marketing strategy. Why do, Crossway needs to hire me to do marketing for them. <laughs> <laughs> or um, you can just have two fantastic-looking sets on your shelf. That, also uh, true. Right, to show off. <laughs> that is also true. So uh, I am, this is just off the top of my head question, I, and I'm really curious, and I feel like it's a little bit uh, more of a hot seat sort of question, but it's a total nerd hot seat question, I guess. Who's your least favorite Puritan and why? My least favorite Puritan? Um, probably John Goodwin because he is considered a Puritan but yet is an Arminian. <laughs> so, no, I say that tongue in tongue in cheek. I, you know, I don't. I, I've not read any Puritans that I, I really just don't like. Um, I, I, I would say I, I do think uh, probably the other way I would answer that question is answering it later. I, th I think maybe my my least favorite Puritan is Jonathan Edwards because he <laughs> changes the trajectory of Puritanism and is considered a Puritan while I don't think he should be. Uh, but in our in our, in the uh, parameters of the question, I, yeah, I don't I don't know how to answer that sincerely. <laughs> so here's another question. I don't want this to take forever, but I I am I, I just get curious about all sorts of things as we talk. I start thinking about stuff. John Davenant's hypothetical universalism seems to contrast pretty sharply with Owen's uh, account of the atonement. I, I'm friends with Michael Lynch, who's done a lot of work on Davenant and, you know, defending hypothetical universalism. And, you know, his arguments, Davenant is the clear winner in this debate. What is what is your opinion? Maybe, maybe you would say Davenant's the winner, but Owen's view is actually right. I, I don't I don't know. I'm just curious. Well, I don't know what what you exactly mean by by winner. Um, the reform tradition uh, overall I think sided with something much closer to Owen uh, than they did Davenant or Amaraldianism or hypothetical universalism. You know, Preston was another one that articulated that. You know, those were those were part of the debates going on when the Synod of Dort met. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's fascinating about that is you 
seemed, the Reformed tradition seemed to think that there was room for everybody, even subscribing to the Synod of Dort. Uh, similarly, you had supralapsarian views of the ordering of divine decrees, uh, where the Synod of Dort seems to me to be infralapsarian, uh, but yet they stay comfortably uh, within the fold. And so uh, I, I'm, I think Owen is right. Uh, I would hold to a um, kind of classical uh, limited atonement for lack of a particular redemption, a little bit better term. Um, but who won the, who won the debate in context? Uh, I don't know, but I think the reform tradition, uh, inherited much more of a traditional view than some of those hybrid views, uh, that came out of the, the 17th century. Yeah, no, I, I think that that sounds right to me anyway. The, the untrained, I at least, but I, Andrew, I th- really thank you for taking the time to talk with us through all this. Um, as we mentioned, we've got some of these volumes that are out. When do you remember, or do you know when the last volumes of this series will be done? So like it started, there's some volumes out. When is it supposed to be finished? They want to have in our, our set with enough of the volume editors in that I think they want to do it in about five years. So they're hoping okay. by the end of 2028, uh, to, to have this, to have this done. And so, Excellent. um, that's the goal. That's the hope. Uh, Lee Gatiss and Sean Wright have their work cut out for them. Um, and, and one of the things that I'm most excited about, I don't know when it's, I, thankfully Crossway just started releasing them as they could, instead of trying to do it all together or, yeah. or you know, in order, cause that would take a long time. But there's uh, going to be fresh translations of some of Owen's works as well in these uh, in these volumes. So, for instance, there's that uh, uh, kind of eclectic work that is biblical theology, uh, John Owen, that is an okay translation, uh, but uh, is going to have a uh, a fresh translation that, that I think will be more helpful and, and reliable. So uh, looking forward to, to that. And anytime you're doing translation and then editing that and the rest, it's, it's, it's a lot. So yeah, pray that the goal of 2028 is, uh, uh, actually what, what reality has for us. So, well, I'm excited either way because I, um, didn't get all of the original Owen volumes. So now I don't feel this tension of what do I do? I just get to buy them as they come and enjoy them. So thank you for your yeah. work in editing these. And uh, I, I'm excited to get all my, my hands on all the volumes. And what I'll do if you're listening, as you know, for all the resources that we have, I'll put the links to at least the ones that have come out so far. I'm going to prioritize the ones that Andrew has edited so you can quickly go to those. But you'll have links to all the ones that are available. And of course, you can go to the Crossway website whenever and just search and find all the stuff there. So as you know, go check those resources out. Support um, these people who are doing hard work here to help us out. We appreciate what you've done, Andrew. And uh, for everybody who's been listening, thanks for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.